grace, mercy, and peace be yours from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'd like to repeat that final stanza of that hymn that we just sang as a prayer as we begin to focus on God's word. O Lord, speak and renew our minds. Help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths that have been unchanged since the dawn of time, truths that will echo down to us through eternity. By grace, we will stand on your promises. By faith, we will walk as you walk with us. O Lord, speak until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. Are you familiar with the expression, history repeats itself? The lesson that we're going to be giving our attention to today from Jeremiah chapter 33 was written almost 2,600 years ago. But it was written at a time when the nation of Israel, as we've seen unfolding in the last couple of weeks, is now happening again, was at war. Things at, at that time, in Jeremiah's day, things were not going well at all for Israel. Their king had been captured by the Babylonian forces and dragged away from his people. He was rotting in a prison cell in Babylon. And a new king, a man named Zedekiah, had been set up in his place and he was doing an awful job. Nebuchadnezzar, whom we heard about in our lesson from Daniel, and his Babylonian army were camped outside of the walls of Jerusalem. They had the city surrounded. They had placed them under a siege. And they were simply waiting until the will of the people in Jerusalem gave out. And a few months after Jeremiah wrote the words that we're going to listen to this morning, that's exactly what happened. Jerusalem fell. And that new king, Zedekiah, he was brought out in front of the people. His sons were dragged out. They were executed in front of him. They gouged out his eyes, and they led him away to prison in Babylon as well. Then they went in and they sacked the city. The walls of Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem, were destroyed so badly that it said not one stone was left standing on another. And while some of those events were still a little ways in the future, when Jeremiah wrote this lesson, the people of Israel were already falling to pieces. And they were starting to call into question the faithfulness of their God to them and the reliability of promises that he had given to them. Promises like, for example, the one he had given to King David that David and his descendants would rule forever. Promises like he had given to Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, that his descendants, the Levites, would serve as priests before God forever. Because as the enemy was camped outside of their walls, there was nothing to the Israelites at that moment that seemed like it would be good forever. So God gave them a word of comfort and assurance through Jeremiah that no word from God would ever fail. But maybe you're thinking at this point, 
that's great, but if all of this is a conversation between God and his people 2,600 years ago, what does that have to do with us today? It matters because I think often, like Israel, we feel like we are surrounded and under siege. These words matter because there are times when you will feel like you are being attacked. Or times when you'll look at yourself, you'll look in the mirror and you'll think, my life feels like it's crumbling to pieces. And so the words of our text this morning are words from God that have stood for his people for these centuries and millennia, words of hope that are there to sustain you when things are bad and seem like they may even be getting worse. We give our attention to Jeremiah chapter 33, beginning with verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel, nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant, and the Levites who minister before me, as countless as the stars in the sky, and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, have you not noticed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose. So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not made my covenant with day and night and established the laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. This is the word of the Lord. In your worship folder, there's a printout, a single sheet that has our text printed on one side. On the back, there's some fill-in-the-blanks that maybe can be a useful tool to you to, to keep in mind the key thoughts as we go through our message this morning. And the first one is this. When things were hard and about to get worse, and God's promises were beginning to be called into question, where did God point 
the Israelites. When things are hard for you and seemingly may get even worse, when you perhaps are starting to call into doubt promises that God has made to you, where does he point you? He pointed them, and he's pointing us here today to Jesus, our Savior. We didn't hear the name Jesus stated explicitly in this text. Remember, we're still 600 years before Jesus would come into the world. But what we see here is a promise about our coming Savior, a promise where Jeremiah speaks of a day when a branch will sprout forth from the stump of David. We heard in the lesson from Daniel how Nebuchadnezzar had this dream where he was a great and powerful tree and and that tree was cut down and all that remained was a stump. And a similar thing, it seemed right here, was happening to the house of David. This dynasty that had lasted for hundreds of years of David and his descendants was being cut down. Those two kings, as I mentioned, the one had been taken away was in a prison in Babylon. To him, God had promised he would never have a son who would rule after him over God's people. The other one, as you heard, when Nebuchadnezzar finally broke in, his sons were put to death. So what was happening to David's family? What would come from it? The people were wondering. Even after they returned from exile in Babylon, never again would one of David's children, descendants, sit on the physical throne in Jerusalem. But his line persisted. They survived through the exile. David had descendants that came back after that exile. And they had children. And their children had children. And the line continued all the way down to a man who found work as a carpenter in a little town in the north of Israel named Joseph. And his fiancée, a young woman named Mary, was also a descendant from David. And so the child that she gave birth to, a child that was not from Joseph, but a child that came from God, was a direct descendant of King David. They gave that child the name Jesus, which means he saves. Because an angel messenger had appeared both to Mary and to Joseph, letting them know that this child was the one who would save his people, Jerusalem and Judah. This child was the one who would rule on the throne of his father, David, forever. If you think about that, in order to be able to claim lineage from David, you have to be a human being. But when we bring into question that word forever, this child had to be more than just a human being. This child had to be divine. And what we have in the birth of that child, Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas, we've been celebrating this for 2,000 years now, we have the greatest miracle of all time the Lord God Almighty taking on human flesh to come and to fulfill the promises that he had given to his people, these promises of a king and a priest who would rule and serve before them forever. 
We actually remember our lesson from Jeremiah in our Christmas celebration, that first line of that prophecy about the branch. We have a Christmas song, Behold, a branch is growing, right? A song about that branch that we see fulfilled in our Savior, Jesus. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one whom the Lord was speaking about when he says in our text, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne, nor will the priest ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to burn offerings and present sacrifices. Jesus is our everlasting king and our everlasting priest that God promised to us in his unbreakable covenant. But what does that mean, a king and a priest? Why do we need a king? And what do we need a priest for? These are terms and titles that we maybe don't use or see all that frequently today. But the purpose of a king, the, the core purpose of a king was to provide peace and safety and stability for his people. A king enforced the rule of law within his nation, but also protected his nation from outside nations that would come and attack to try to invade. We need an everlasting king, a spiritual king, because there are forces of evil at work in this world that we are going to come up against that are forces that we cannot protect or defend ourselves from on our own. And so we need a king who will stand up for us, who will go to battle for us. We need a king with the power and the might to protect us. There may be times when faced with the dangers and struggles that come at us in this world, you're going to be tempted to cry out just as the people in Jeremiah's time did, God has rejected me. He's rejected his people. How could he allow these things to happen to me? Has he forgotten the promises that he gave me in his word? And friends, when those temptation comes, my encouragement to you is to look to Jesus. Look to your Savior, Jesus, and see what God has already done for you. He came down into our world and entered into our existence. He took on human flesh so that he could take the battle to our enemy. Jesus crushed our enemy, the devil, at the cross. Jesus threw down with death, and he won. He won victory over death for you so that he could give you a royal inheritance, so that he could give to you the gift of everlasting life in heaven. To summarize it, we can say this, that as king, Jesus has defeated the enemy of death and he's given us an everlasting royal inheritance. And so may that hope sustain you and quiet your doubts when the enemy presses in around you in whatever way, shape, or form that may come. But God promised not just a king, he also promised a great priest. Well, why do we need a priest? We need a priest because the battles that we fight are not just battles against the things that come at us from outside. But there's also a battle that happens in here. 
there's a force of evil at work inside of us. Because every single one of us here has a sinful human nature. You, you got it from your sinful human mother and your sinful human father. They passed it along to you, this sinful human nature that desires not the things that God loves, but the things that you want. And so there's a war that goes on inside of us. And it's a war that some days we might feel like we're winning. And it's a war that some days we know we've definitely lost. And so that's what we need a priest for. Because as a priest is a person who comes and stands in between you and God. And that priest takes the guilt of your sins and makes offerings to God on your behalf makes sacrifices on an altar so that the, the aroma of that sacrifice can go up to God and be pleasing to him and so that he might forgive you the guilt of your sins. Because guilt is something that comes along with sins. When we do these things that we know are wrong, we're accompanied by this feeling that we have wronged the one who loves us more than anyone else. We've wronged the God who created us, the God who calls us to obedience. And so we have this feeling of guilt. You may be tempted when that guilt rises up to question, as I'm sure some of the Israelites were in the time of Jeremiah, how can God ever forgive me for the things that I have done? How could he ever do anything other than punish me for the shameful and disgusting and sinful acts that I have carried out against him? And surely I don't deserve anything more than the Israelites to be sent away from my God-given inheritance and handed over to the enemy. Friends, when those temptations come, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and remember what God has already done for you. That he sent Jesus into this world, he entered into our existence, he took on human flesh, and then he lived a life under God's law, and he perfectly obeyed every one of those laws. Jesus did that so that he could take his perfect life and present it to God as an offering on your behalf. He went to the altar of the cross and he gave up his life on the cross for you as a sacrifice so that your sins could be washed away and forgiven. So Jesus is our great high priest. As priest, he removes our guilt and he gives us his name. Look in verse 16 of the text. There's a really very beautiful thing there. The name that God gives to his people. He says, to Jerusalem and to Judah, this is the name by which they will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. The word Savior isn't actually there in the original text, and I think maybe a more literal translation would be, the Lord is our righteousness. That's what God tells us, is the reality, the identity for the people that he sends his son Jesus to save. 
If you go back in Jeremiah to Jeremiah chapter 23, there's a very similar prophecy, and in that one it says that our Savior, the King, the branch himself, will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And now here, 10 chapters later, he tells us that God's people will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So God and his people share the same name. You have been given the name of your God. He has placed it on you. My love, you have been given the name of your God. He put it on you this morning. We heard it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, he gives us his name. And with the waters of baptism washing over us, he washes onto us the righteousness of Jesus so that when somebody asks, who are you, you can say, I am the righteousness of my Lord. He removes our guilt. He gives us his name. He clothes us in his righteousness. And my hope is that for you, your hope in that promise can sustain you and bring you peace when our enemy, the devil, tries to weigh you down with guilt and shame that Jesus has already taken away. That hope, that hope that Jesus gives us is one that we can be certain of and sure of. But how certain? In our text, he paints a picture, and I think I could say, pardon the pun, he makes it as clear as day. Right? There were a couple of times there where he said, if you can break my covenant with the day and night, so that day no longer turns into night, and night no longer turns into day. Then, and only then, will these promises that I have given to my people ever fail. So as certain as the laws of nature are and continue to take place day after day after day, that certainty, God says, can be yours when you look at the promises that he has given to you. So where does that leave us? Moving forward with these promises from our God that will protect us and sustain us when evil comes from outside or when we deal with the evil that we carry inside. What's his calling for us now moving forward? There's one more promise left for us in Jeremiah 33. If you look at verse 22, look at what God has to say about you. He says, I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me, as countless as the stars in the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. So what is he saying to you there? He's saying that as redeemed children of God, with Christ as your righteousness, you are now also priests and rulers before God and in his kingdom. He's saying that all of us who believe in Christ are kings and queens who are sent out to rule in this world, bringing peace and security and prosperity as we rule with the gospel of Jesus that he has given to us. He's saying that all of us who believe in Christ are priests under our great high priest, priests who have been robed with his righteousness and called to come before him in his temple, this temple of our lives, and to present before him 
the sacrifices of our lips and of our lives, sacrifices that have been made new and clean as they're washed with the blood of Jesus. So that's my prayer and my encouragement for you. As we leave God's house this morning, go out and know that you are priests and kings and queens under Jesus Christ, your Lord. Rule in the lives of each other. Rule by the power of the gospel. Build up and bring peace and encourage and, and bring joy wherever it is that you can. Serve as priests in the lives of the people around you, standing there with them and pointing them to God, bringing forgiveness and grace and love. Point one another to Jesus and to the great things that God has already done for you. He is our almighty king whose rule will last forever. He is our great high priest who gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins. Amen.